we're using the word histories um, plural because we're still showing multiple lives and voices and experiences on, on in this are on display in the show and that's a way to show how there is no we're refusing a grand narrative or a singular way of understanding our past black creativity is unstoppable the studio noise podcast takes you into the studio with black artists and creatives making the art that moves the culture you get to feel all the inspiration technique and passion behind the people making paintings making sculptures making prints making noise it's the studio noise podcast with your host jamal barber it's the noise yes it's your boy jay barber I'm reading straight from the Afro-Atlantic Histories catalog. If the authors are identified as geniuses and masters, their products assume an almost otherworldly reverential property. As our historian Steve Edwards has put it, the canon is the structural condition for art history. And it's the canon that we wrestle with all the time because we know that black artists, African descendant people are purposely intentionally left out of a version of history but the entire time we've been working making creating witnessing history in our time we african descendant people have chronicled our stories the entire time and finally the work has been done to begin to reveal another version of history that adds the black perspective afro-atlantic histories debuted in 2018 in sao paulo brazil and this year has made its way to the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. And we have the pleasure of talking to one of the curators from this amazing show, Kanitra Fletcher, the first ever associate curator of African-American and Afro-diasporic art at the NGA. The show is a massive undertaking and it's beautiful and it's just mind blowing how it's been put together. I've been studying the catalog this, <laughs> this whole time preparing for this thing. It's, I'm fascinated with it. Kanitra tells us about the show the themes that organize it and some of the amazing work. Now, Kenitra is brilliant. Just listening, you can you can just tell it's so obvious how she comes through with just authority and knowledge. I got to bring her back on the podcast for sure. Uh, but she's also super busy, right? <laughs> she's booked and busy, right? She's booked and busy. But we had a little bit of time where I took advantage of her. I asked her all the questions. I got to the good stuff. You know how I do it. But I'm not going to give you a halfway version of the noise. I'm not going to cheat you out your full episode of inspiration for the week i can't do that to y'all so so i went and searched through the fam and i saw that one of our studio noise fam had been to the show in person had experienced it you know she's guaranteed to be the one to be able to talk about it because she's the curator in chief for studio noise <laughs> that's right lauren jackson harris she went to see the show in person and she's going to give us her expert insight to the experience of the show now i've been studying the catalog but she saw it in person, which is awesome. A little bit jealous, but <laughs> but you still get that perspective because we can't always get to go see all these shows all over the country, jet set and like who has time and money for that. You know, I'm just an artist, so <laughs> but I do what I gotta do. But you get those two perspectives from somebody that's intellectually curious about it and that studied the show, and then you got somebody that experienced it. I think it's a great inspiration, a great way to cap off this episode where you get, you get to explore the show a little bit more. And you know that's what the noise do. And it is the noise, the Studio Noise Podcast, giving you your weekly dose of inspiration from the very best in the Black contemporary art world, the artists, the curators, the visionaries, making it happen, making the art happen every day, yo. It goes, so you can go to studionoisepodcast.com, see the archive, learn about the show, support the show, buy some merch, maybe, maybe. Please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you show some love to the podcast. Let everybody know about the noise. And if you really love it, you can join the Studio Noise Patreon. Make sure to keep this thing going. We can keep building this archive of the voices of black art. And that link is in the show notes and it's on the, pod, on the, and it's on the website too. So you can make sure you check it out. Studio Noise. Look for somewhere to go. We see some of that good black art that we'll be talking about. You can make sure you go down to the Black Art in America Gallery at 1802 Connolly Drive East in East Point. It's a wonderful place. It's a great building. It's a great space. It's, you feel at home. You see a bunch of great art in there. Art from some of the masters in art history. Ron Adams, Reginald Gammon, 
some of the new masters in art history, like your boy Jay Barber, like Najee Dorsey, who has his own Najee Dorsey gallery right there. It'll be the main place where you can go and check out all that fresh new Najee work that they got going on there. It's the garden. You can go sit out on a Eugene Forney deck. You can check out some of that garden art for the soul. All that good stuff, yo. The home of black art right here in Atlanta, right past Tyler Perry Studio. It's right down there in the Black Art American Gallery. Make sure you go check them out. Go check them out at blackartinamerica.com. Go ahead and get your people together. This is the first episode we ever went in depth on a show like this. Just one show, but I think it's legendary and I think it's worth the effort. So I think you'll really enjoy it. Another episode of The Noise for you right now. So go ahead and tell two friends, art lovers, that's, that used to get out there and jet set. You ain't got a jet set. Listen to The Noise. <laughs> you get the whole thing for the Afro-Atlantic History Show at the National Gallery of Art coming up. We got one of the curators, Kanitra Fletcher, right after the break on The Noise, baby. Yes. This is Deborah Grayson. I'm a printmaker, and you are listening to Studio Noise Podcast. All right, it's your boy Jay Barber back with Studio Noise, the voice of Black Art. So, so excited to have Kanitra Fletcher on the podcast with me right now, the first ever associate curator of African American Afro diasporic art at the National Gallery of Art. How you doing, Kanitra? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. For sure. And it, it's so exciting uh, to talk about this huge show that y'all have going on at the NGA right now, Afro Atlantic Histories. Such an amazing project. And you are apparently the, the woman that made it all happen. <laughs> Well, I mean, actually, the show originated in Sao Paulo, Brazil, at the Museum of Art in Sao Paulo. Um, there were uh, a team of curators that came together to create um, Afro-Atlantic histories. And that original show, there was over 400 works spread out to two different venues. And so when I started the U.S. tour, um, I was at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. And um, when we took on the show for the, to make it into a U.S. tour, I had to reduce all those works down to about 130. And I also took out a couple of sections of the, of the show as well. So I always have to pay respect to Sao Paulo for yeah. originating the show. Yeah. But um, yes, I, I organized what would become the U.S. tour of the show. That's right. And and that in and of itself is a ton of work. Right? Just thinking of like if they organize well, if they organize a show with 400 works and you have to go and kind of pick through and kind of keep the same uh, themes going mm. like throughout the whole thing. Like, how was that process for you? OK, well, that yeah, that's a good question. There were a lot of different factors that played into to reducing the show or, or you know, organizing the show for U.S. venue. Well, you know, first I'll say that I have my own personal and like scholarly interests. Um, I got my master's in um, in Latin American studies, specifically Brazilian studies. And so I've always been interested in Brazilian art and culture. And that's why I took on the show to begin with. But, you know, when I was thinking about the uh, changes, I was thinking about First of all, how much one person can reasonably take in, you know, mm, and yeah, one, one yeah. visit to a museum. And personally, I feel like it's about 150 or less, you know, that that's already a lot. But, you know, I think that it's doable within like an hour, an hour and a half you yeah. know, when you're inside a show. I also uh, saw the first quick and dirty way to do it was to remove two sections that I thought didn't necessarily have to be a part of the show when it traveled outside of, of Brazil. And one of those sections was called Roots and Trances, mm -hmm. which focused solely on connections between Africa, Jamaica, and Bahia, um, this uh, uh, state of Brazil, Bahia. And so, you know, while that's absolutely fascinating, it was, I felt a little bit limited in scope for American audiences and for a show that's exploring the broad scope of the diaspora, all the different, you know, um, 
countries that combine to make the diaspora, only focusing on Africa, Jamaica, and Bahia, left a lot out. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I moved that, I moved, took that section out, but I did move a few works from that section into another section. And then and there's another section called Afro-Atlantic Modernisms, which was a smaller section and largely based on abstract painting from right. the 40s to the 70s. Yeah, and so that showed Black artists' contribution to modernism. Again, fascinating, but it also seemed out of place because of such a small number of works in it. Also, those works were only from, like I say, the 40s to the 70s, so a 30-year span. And this show was about 400 years of works. And so I felt that that section could go also because that section was largely about art history, you know, art historical movements, not like the stories and narratives of people. Right. Yeah. So I thought those sections, and I moved a few works out of that section into uh, um, other sections as well. So incredibly strong sections they they made sense you know to some extent in the brazilian context but for the u.s store i didn't think it was absolutely necessary to stay and it was a way to reduce the number of works so those were that that was part of the changes that i um, instituted yeah and so that left you with six sections and how mm-hmm. it's organized with in terms of themes you got maps and margins enslavement and mm-hmm. emancipation everyday lives rights and rhythms portraits and resistance and activism. I'm looking, mm-hmm. I'm looking, had the pleasure to look through the Afro-Atlantica history. I guess you can call it a catalog. It's more like just a book. It's a huge thing <laughs> with all these pictures and stuff in it. But even going through it, you can see such a clarity in terms of how everything is organized and how everything lines up. One in particular mm-hmm. I want to talk about, I want to make a note that I'm referencing the catalog. So some of the work was not included in the NGA version of the show. There was a section that had all these landscapes in them and they related works from Benny Andrews, Charles Landseer and Caribe, John Biggers, all in a row. And so we start to talk about the lenses in which we start to see the African-American experience during this whole time. And the landscapes are populated differently, like in terms of when you see all these different imagery. Talk, mm-hmm. talk to me about that a little bit, because I, th- I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, that that section, um, yeah, is an important, I mean, they're all important, but that section is really important because it's really capturing, you know, aspects of the daily lives of Black people in their own communities, largely um, post-slavery. And so it's thinking about the ways that Black lives had been pictured earlier before slavery by Europeans who were sort of like... um, obscuring the realities of, of enslavement and colonization. Yeah, romanticizing and, um, it. Exactly, romanticizing forced labor. And you could see that in one image called Landscape with Anteater by um, a Dutch artist called Franz Post, who basically diminishes all the, all the figures and, and creates this scene in which it seems to be enslaved Africans, indigenous people, and and colonial Dutch settlers all, you know, having a casual conversation, getting along harmoniously in this beautiful uh, landscape in the background. But, you know, that actually was everyday violence being enacted upon those enslaved enslaved people, of course, and and as well as indigenous um, people who were, you know, killed upon their arrival, Dutch, Dutch arrival. So, that that misrepresentation of black lives is not essentially not necessarily are directly corrected with the later work but you see differences right you see different um perspectives on on black life and black labor in that section and so there's these beautiful images by uh hatred deuce prazeres a brazilian artist philome oben an important Haitian artists, um, Clementine Hunter, and African-American artists who are really giving these intimate views of people, uh, centering the laborers and evoking this really sense of pride and joy in people's work and, and, and people's land and ownership of their own land, you know, and just a completely different take on, on, on everyday lives and also showing us the normalcy of those lives, you know, uh, that the humanity of black people and then the normalcy of their humanity. Absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about the word histories being used in terms of multiple, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, right. Just in terms of how all these things are coming together and how black artists were capturing black life, even though they were being technically ignored by the quote unquote canon of people that were paying attention to it. Right. Well, histories is an important uh, point, yes, to make about the show, this plural word. So the original show in Brazil is called Historias Afro-Atlanticas. And Historias is not a it's not a perfect translation to histories as you understand it in the English language. So historias in Portuguese and Spanish, it doesn't mean facts. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean necessarily fiction. It's a mix of all those different types of ways of storytelling and different types of narratives. Um, they all come into play with historias. But for the English tour, we're using it, we're using the word histories um, plural because we're still showing um, multiple lives and voices and experiences on, on, in this, are on display in the show. And that's a way to show how there is no, we're refusing a grand narrative or a singular way of understanding um, our past. And, and that's also combining not only voices of artists of African descent, but artists of European descent. And so when you're placing these works side by side, which is another important aspect of the show, um, that it is thematically organized and not chronologically or geographically or by artists, you're able to create these transnational, transhistorical dialogues where an earlier work by a European artist is next to a later work by a Black artist, and you kind of see how they're correcting the Black artists are, are effectively correcting or countering or challenging or complicating the work by the earlier artists. And so, yes, it's, it's a real um, dialogue happening throughout the show. Who are some of the artists that you know, just come to mind for you, especially, that were challenging some of these assumptions? For instance, in the enslavements and emancipation section, there are actually several examples, but one that comes to mind is a book that's um, an illustrated illustration, a book of illustrations by an artist named Richard Bridgens, who had in, was spending a lot of time in Trinidad after his wife had uh, inherited a plantation. And so he would go to Trinidad and he was drawing, you know, different scenes of daily life, you know, with people at the, uh, working the field, people, um, you know, there are different types of hair, hair wraps and, and, you know, some of the scarification uh, techniques from uh, Africa. But then also you see uh, images of enslaved people with collars and chains around their necks, uh, these masks, these um, metal masks placed over their faces, all these different um, scenes of torture mm. where illustrated alongside these everyday imager, imagery to sort of normalize this kind of treatment of a human being. And, and then on the wall near those um, images, you see works by um, Afro-Brazilian artist uh, Paolo Nazareth and um, African-American artist Kara Walker and Afro-Brazilian artist Sidney Amaral, who are creating images that, that refer to those um, signs of torture. Um, Paulo Nazareth has a photograph um, that shows him with a skull across his face that looks, that evokes that, or, or looks like that mask that you see in the Richard Bridgens illustration. And he's kind of speaking to this idea of choosing death over slavery, mm -hmm. because those masks were used to prevent enslaved people to ingest soil which some believe was a way of slow form of suicide, a way to escape slavery. And so Paolo is saying, yes, you know, I understand or I can in embody that experience of feeling like I, you know, I would rather die than be for sale, be enslaved. You know, those are like speaking to the realities of those kind of tough choices that many enslaved people um, had to make. But also thinking about that choice of death as a form of, I guess we can say, bravery and, and, a, and, a, and a struggle for freedom. Mm -hmm. It's a part of that, those ongoing struggles for freedom, because throughout in, uh, in slave, uh, excuse me, the slavery era, from its inception, Black people were always struggling for freedom. Many people think that 
this was something that was granted to them by benevolent white people. No, that's not the, that's not the case. The reason that it was eventually abolished is because black people were continuously fighting for freedom. Yes. And I, and gotta always emphasize that, that just because the resistance and fighting doesn't take on the means that you want it to, doesn't mean there wasn't right. resistance like happening all the time. I didn't know that story about uh, ingesting soil. That's, that's very interesting. When we talk about right, it's one of those. No, hmm? go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, no, I was just saying, like you were saying, which is exactly what I'm trying to say as well. That like you know these these form these struggles for freedom are come out in different ways, right? It's um, suicide. It's uh, running away. It's poisoning people. It's you know uh, some are violent, some are nonviolent, some are enacted upon others, some are enacted upon yourself to just get out of of enslavement right. know, by any means possible. Right. right. Yeah. It's very interesting that you have um, some of these connections, like the history of slavery, where uh, only a certain percent of them actually came to America's and a mm-hmm. lot of them came to South America and mm-hmm. in that kind of area. Most. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about the ways in which culture traveled during that time. Cause I think that's particularly interesting where you can see some of these symbols, the dances, the, the way we wrap our hair, all of that stuff can be linked to each other. Like, you know, just in all these different snapshots from all these different artists from all these different times, you can start to see that we are kind of originating from the same place, even though we've kind of dispersed. Yeah, well, I do want to go back to that important point you just made, though, about the distribution of enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Um, because that that was something that we really wanted to communicate um, and set out to, I guess, sort of correct. Um, because there's a misunderstanding I think many of us have, many Americans have, that most enslaved people arrived here in what would be the what would become the United States. And we have a didactic tool in the exhibition that explains that projection. Um, and it shows the volume of enslaved people um, and wh- from where they departed and to where they arrived. Um, so you see that only about four to six percent of enslaved people actually arrived in what would be the United States. Forty percent of them arrived in Brazil. And then you have the rest distributed mainly across the Caribbean. So very few people ended up in, um, very few enslaved people ended up in what would be the United States. Now, it's not to say that, you know, we should ignore (laughs) that, that, you know, people ended up here, but there does need to be a correction. And I think in many cases for people to understand that most people ended up in Brazil. And so that, and that's also important because you see that Brazil is, you know, 50% Afro-descended. I mean, almost more than half of the country is what we would call black. And a lot of people have uh, some misunderstandings also about how race relations work in Brazil. And so one of the unfortunate parallels that you find between our country and Brazil is that they have just as many instances of state-sanctioned violence and and racism and oppression that we do. Mm. Um, And so a lot of people think that Brazil is this, uh, what what they call, quote unquote, a racial democracy, um, where essentially saying that there are no, um, uh, that that black and white Brazilians get along harmoniously, that there's no racism in Brazil. I mean, I've heard people actually say that to me, like, but there's no racism in Brazil. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah. which is i don't know where there is no racism but <laughs> but it's certainly not brazil and so um you know when you go through the show you see so many parallels between america and brazil and and haiti and and jamaica and so many different parts of the diaspora but unfortunately one of those is experiences of racism and oppression mm. But like you say, there are so many instances of joy and love and create creativity and community that translate in almost seamlessly to our experiences as Americans from all those other uh, nations as well. Like you say, different styles of, of dress, um, different forms of actually protest and, and activism and other instances of just uh, everyday life as well 
and especially and also um, many instances of religions with so many of uh, uh, religious practices that you find in Cuba like Santeria and Brazil like Candomblé and, and Haiti like voodoo these are all African derived um, traditions that are slightly different in their in their individual context but resonate easily um, across across waters absolutely and so lastly I ask you about uh, the essay that you wrote inside of the catalog the occupy self-portraiture I thought it was fascinating, and especially when we're in this moment now where kind of black figuration is kind of the end thing for people mm. to explore and, and to put on display as in terms of the definition of black art. This is what black art looks like. You know what I'm saying? And so tell me about tell me about that real, real quick. I thought you had some very interesting points in it. Sure. Well, I mean, speaking about black figuration in general, I mean, it's a really interesting moment, right? I mean, I I. I'm of I'm of two minds about it. I do think it's extremely exciting. I think that it a large part of it shows that there are so many more um, black artists working and um, being trained or you know going to entering into art schools um, and so and and feeling like they want to celebrate um, themselves and and black culture and black in their community and I and I love that and I'm so happy that um they're they're finding success you know as black artists as mm -hmm. well because there are so many <laughs> black artists who have been working for decades who have waited for decades yeah. to get the kind of recognition that they deserve yeah for real yeah <laughs> and they're just now getting right um you know i'm also uh I, i'm hoping it's not a trend you know i'm also thinking about that and hoping that this isn't something that's just this you know, a bubble that's going to pop at some point and we go back to the status quo where, you know, people are struggling to get noticed and, and it's not and are not recognized anymore. So, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. But, you know, the, the large point of my essay, I for me, was to show that artists do not live in a bubble, that they, they're not living in these ivory tires, that they're ivory towers that they are a part of the real world not removed from society and they are experiencing these histories and traumas and moments of love and creativity like i was speaking about earlier um as black people every day the way we are and by, ins by inserting themselves in their artwork they're speaking to that you know that these are not abstract concepts to them you know, of everyday lives and rights and rhythms and enslavement and emancipations, middle passage, that they themselves as artists are drawing from these um, histories, um, that they experience them just like we do. And by showing their, their own selves and their own bodies, they, um, well, they speak to that. Absolutely, yo. And so uh, last question, what do you want people to take away from kind of this massive undertaking that you have, this incredible exhibition? <laughs> Uh, what do you want people to t walk away from the from the show thinking? Well, I really want them, to, you know, to see the breadth and the complexity of the African diaspora. I think it's important to understand how integral blackness is to uh, the making of the modern West, you know, of the modern world. To understand that, so that even though it seems that black culture and black people are counter to European. Um, European culture and people, that's sort of a myth itself that, that's been perpetuated by this desire uh, by white Europeans to, you know, to uh, uplift these notions of superiority and, and, and purity. Mm -hmm. But you see that they, then that that's not the case that, you know, white artists historically have been engaging with um, black people and black lives and and these kind of um, uh, the integration of blackness and whiteness is rarely seen within museums and on the walls. And I think that this show allows us to see that black, like I say, black lives and culture have been part and parcel with the making of the modern West. It, the, the West, the modern world, could not be without blackness. You know, uh, capitalism that is an outgrowth of these histories of slavery. So much of our arts and culture and music and dance and food are African derived. 
uh, these Western ideals and discourses on democracy that so many people speak of, they had they were formulated and developed through those struggles for freedom from slavery. So if it weren't for black people, the world would not be the way it is. Oh man, yeah, so you can say <laughs> so, that one more time, yo. <laughs> You're right about that. <laughs> to the people in the back, yes. <laughs> for sure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Janisha. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate your interest in the show. Yo, 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 is this, is this thing on? Uh, this is your boy, Dr. Fahamu Paku, live from Atlantis. You know how we do. And I'm tuned in, locked in to Studio Noise. Yes, it's your boy, Jay Barber. We just heard from Kenitra Fletcher, one of the curators of the amazing show Afro-Atlantic Histories at the National Gallery of Art. And so your boy, you don't always get to go see these shows. And I've been sitting here studying this catalog, doing the research, looking, feeling very envious. But not, but we got somebody that actually went and got to experience this amazing show from the Studio Noise fam. One of my favorite curators, Lauren Jackson Harris, arts consultant and co-founder and director of Black Women in Visual Art. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, you know, we love having you on the show, Lauren. You're, you're the best. <laughs> absolute best. You know, you always, you know, I've got you. I always got you. Always. <laughs> so, so you got a chance to go see this incredible show. Well, first off, before we get into that, how you been doing? You know, I'm doing okay. I mean, the world just seems like it's on fire, but I'm maintaining. <laughs> I am working through it all. I'm yes. keeping my family healthy. I'm keeping healthy. But um, so, but Black Women Art is doing really well. And I hope that anyone that's listening can follow along with what we're doing over at um, Black Women Visual Art on Instagram and on our website. I also recently started as the Director of Art Sales at SCAD, which is Savannah College of Art and Design here all in Atlanta. Right. Um, so I'm excited to kind of bridge the Atlanta arts community with what SCAD is doing here. Um, and yeah, other than that, I'm still doing some independent stuff. So it's all exciting things. Yeah, we might have to bring you back on another podcast to talk about your SCAD <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the Afro-Atlantic Histories, you went to the show. Tell us about your visit. It was it was absolutely magical, to say the least. Um, it, it was, I went on a day, I usually like to go to exhibitions when there's not a lot of people around so I can have like my quiet moments. Yeah. Um, but this was actually a day that there was a festival happening. Um, it was called the John Wilmer Ding Symposium on American Art and Community Celebration. And it was specifically for the Afro-Atlantic History Festival. Um, and it was a day long festival and I was surprised. I was like, oh, I didn't expect all these people to be here. I wanted to have my own, you know, nice experience. But it, having everyone around, it was just, it actually amplified it, um, the experience a little bit more. Because um, as soon as you enter, the there's an atrium before you enter the gallery where Afro-Atlantic Histories um, was exhibiting. And in that space, they had a fountain and greenery. They had tables lining around the atrium um, of Black vendors that were from D.C. in the general area. Um, where I bought I bought this nice little green bag with like Angela Davis on it, and then they had you know the 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 wing sauce. What is the uh, uh, what is the sauce? I I went to Howard. I should know what the sauce is. I forgot. <laughs> but they had like sauces out. They had spices out. They had art out. And it was like all these different vendors, and I was like, okay, cool. I'm gonna come back and check that out. But let me walk in. So as soon as you walk in, it's just this. Um, you're immediately greeted by. Um, by this Africa, the shape of Africa mirror, and you're looking at yourself in the shape of Africa. Um, and it's like, I just took a picture of myself in it, cause like, who wouldn't? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm like, that's that's what it's for. Yeah. But, um, and you're immediately greeted by the shape of Africa in a mirror, just look at yourself in the reflection. I believe um, that's a Hank in that Willis space. Thomas piece. It is, it is a Hank Willis Thomas piece. Yeah. Um, and in my little video, you can see that just you're entered, you already have this, like you're sitting in with, it's welcoming, but you also realize this is going to be the blackest thing you could ever experience. <laughs> um, and, I, yeah. and I could, and I really couldn't wait. Um, and so it was very crowded. So I tried to get as much video as I could, but also I don't like to take a lot of video and pictures because I do want to experience the art for what it is. Um, the most magical aspect of this, there were pieces that I'd seen aside from the contemporary art that I was just fascinated by, there were pieces in that exhibition that I had not ever seen in person about people that I've studied. Um, and that was kind of towards the tail end, kind of pieced in with other pieces, but it's just, 
it was magical. Um, I don't know if you want to ask specific questions, but I think my favorite pieces um, was one of the Aaron Douglas um, pieces that mm, yeah. that's on the cover of our our textbooks, basically. Yeah. Um, I forgot the title of it. Let me actually. I have the book in front of me. But um, but it, when I saw that piece in person, that piece has been resonating. Around. Are you talking about Into Bondage? Yes. Okay. It's yeah. like with the blue and the the yeah. spotlight coming down on the black man's face. Yeah. That piece was something that I had never seen in person, and have it's been on the cover of my textbooks. It's been topic of conversations. It's been thought of, but seeing that in person, I stopped and stared at it forever. Um, and it was funny because you know I was in the audience of the other other viewers around me were of all races. And I think they couldn't understand why something was more appealing to me than others. And this, I was walking around with, with this, there was just like this older um, um, white lady that was kind of near me with her, with her husband. She was maybe about 70, 80 years old. She was moving really slow. And I think she realized I was moving slow, but I don't know why <laughs> I was like, cause I was like, I was actually scanning like, um, like the numbers and, and doing like the digital, um, the digital engagement that they had. So you could scan the QR code and listen to um, the history of a piece um, with certain pieces. It wasn't on every piece, yeah. but it was on really pivotal ones. And so I made sure I stopped and did that. And she was like, why are you doing that? And I was like, cause I'm listening to the history. I'm listening to what this is for me. And so even though I knew I was wrecking, I was recognized pieces. I still took my time to do all of the QR codes on every piece that it was. And I never do that. And it this exhibition made me stop and really um, kind of relive my education at Howard because at Howard, as an art history student, you do learn about black art. That's not the same. That's not the case with every art history student and other institutions that are outside of an HBCU. Oh, yeah. Um, and so this and having had been in the contemporary art market a lot in the last 10 years, it took me back to my original education, my, my original introduction to art history, which is Howard University, and having all of that black art education spewed at me for four years. And so it kind of reverted me back and took me back into my college days. Um, and it made me want to study art history again, which I am considering. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I know. Who does that? <laughs> Who wants more education? I do. <laughs> because there's always uh, yeah. more things to learn. I want to be I want to be as thorough as possible. Um, even there was a Ramirez beating piece that I stopped and just was like, it's, I mean, it was just, it was just, it was a little magical. So, and one of my favorites was, I'm trying to scroll through and see, it was the Barkley Hendrix. And when I tell you, let me see if I can zoom in on this one to see if I can see what the title is. It was, it was George Jules Taylor from 1972 by Barkley Hendrix. Mm -hmm. It was gigantic. You literally turn the corner into this room as you're walking into this other this other room. There's so many different rooms in there. But as you're walking into this room, all you see is this black man with this like cape on with this barefoot and the blue hat. And I was just like, oh, my wow. goodness. Wow. It was and it was just and it was like this silver back of it and was like glistening with the spotlight. I was like, how? And I just stood there and people were like behind me, like, can you move? And I'm like, no, I'm going to stand <laughs> right here. And I tried to get a good picture, but people kept walking around me. I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to get this picture. Yeah. Um, but it was like the most striking image um, just to have it on that wall by itself. It was phenomenal. And I think the one thing that we should highlight is the fact of how they placed everything together. Yeah, um, I, know, I think that's going to lead into my first question was uh, mm -hmm. you as a curator organizer, like the way they organize his event with uh, the different subject matters. Like, what did you mm -hmm. think of it and how did it translate as you were walking through the space? Oh, it, it was per it was perfection. I mean, and it's and it's funny because I was almost mad because I was like, I, Atlanta, you know, we are a thriving arts and creative community but the quality of which this was done does not exist here. Mm. And I hate to say that because I love Atlanta. I love what we're doing, but the quality and the thoughtfulness, the research, the, even just, even just having the QR codes, like one of the pieces, because as you were walking through and even in the different sections and having the different topics, it, it, it did, it was a guide, but it flowed to me in that way where all I needed to read was what that was. And I understood everything else behind it as a black woman who works in the arts. Yeah. Um, but the best part that I really enjoyed was having 
the QR codes and, and, and like I could literally, it was like a podcast the entire time for me. Having, and some of them with the living artists, the living artist was actually on the, on the, um, the digital uh, engagement with them talking about their own work or, or it was a historian talking about the work and the importance of it. And so that was the most pivotal and special aspect for me. Um, and, but the flow of it was extremely well done, extremely well thought of. Um, and it was just the variety of which it was done as well. There was another piece that by Renee Stout, um, it was called the headstone from Marie Laveau. Mm. I, I, it was interesting because the white lady caught up, the little white lady caught up with me at that piece. And I was scanned it. That was I was doing another scan for the QR code, and I had my earphones in listening. And I almost started crying. And she walks up to me. She was like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, <laughs> "Mate, I was like, lady, can I have my yeah, moment? like leave me alone." <laughs> I was like, "Can I have my moment? I'm listening to this history of the piece." She's like, "Oh, what does it mean?" I was like, "That's what this QR code. Oh, I didn't bring my phone. I don't bring my phone when I come to these things." And I was like, "Well, I am, and I'm listening to it. Um, so just give me a moment." But she just was so she, I was like, you could read the I was like, you could read the passage, but I think it's better to listen to this artist and this historian talk about this work. And so I I think the, the having the QR code is invaluable. And I wish that was maybe advertised that people knew that they could do this um, and probably was advertised and just people didn't realize it. But I, I scanning your phone and being able to capture um, the history verbally aside from you just reading it and looking at it was like a full circle moment to where you could, to where you could um, really experience it. Yeah. You know how it is in museums, you when people move right. around, you know, you can't get people to do nothing. When, <laughs> you know right. What I mean? right. So, right. yeah. So, yeah, but I'm, I'm so excited for like that amount of work and detail that went into it uh, because it does make a difference when you can hear from the people right. themselves and even right. the, the, I mean, Kanitra's a brilliant to talk to. I really need to get her back on the show, but it's so much effort and knowledge and genius went into putting this stuff together, even editing down yep. the original exhibition the way they did. Like, yes. you know, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, one thing that I talked about with her and I'll bring it up with you and see if, if this um, resonated with you was I talked about how, uh, in landscapes, the way that mm -hmm. people treated the landscapes were different. When black people treat landscapes, we see ourselves in the landscape yeah. reflected yeah. in all the life and energy and color that's involved with it, where everything else at the time was landscapes made humans insignificant. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the story. Tell me, did you notice anything like that as she was walking through? I, I think that the imagery... Are you speaking about landscape art in 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 intentionally like with landscape based art or are you talking about landscape? No, I'm talking about I'm talking about well, I'm talking about the landscape subject matter inside of the art. Because I think um, gotcha. there's a lot of different levels to it, right? It's like you're telling yes. this huge story uh across continents even. And just part of it is like even when they go from like John Biggers to, you know, Charles Lancier and stuff mm -hmm, like that, like mm -hmm. completely different styles, but even the way that you do have Aaron Douglas include black people in the landscape as part yeah. of it together. I think it's, it's no, just was, something different about it, you know? There was a commonality. I think every, I think it was, it's the same way that, you know, when you have musicians where they all understand the baseline of music, they all produce it differently in their own voice. I think each of these artists produce it in their own voices, but the landscape generally being, with us being um, black artists, black producers of work, there, there is a commonality. There is a feeling. There is like this um, grittiness, this feeling that you know that there's some spirituality in it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's where it kind of matches, where it kind of meets each other. Even though they're very different approaches and mediums, there is still this um, baseline of they get it. They're, they're, they're kind of they're in the same. Most of them, some of them were peers, even working in the same time frame. And if they weren't, it was still a level of understanding of our history. It was a level of understanding of um, communicating our 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 livelihood on this on this earth on this planet on on this green land, and so it was interesting to see one how you know regardless of if an artist was from the 70s or for the 1800s or from the contemporary, there is a um, to me 
from my eye, there is a general understanding of just blackness, of being um, Afro Latino. There is a understanding of having some sort of Africanism within your history. And that is very much communicated no matter the time period or no matter the medium that an artist is producing. Does that answer your question? Oh yeah, yeah. No, that was, <laughs> that was great. Yeah, no, that was great. <laughs> sorry, for that, sorry for that pause. Like, well, yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like sometimes I go off and I'm like, "Am I making sense?" No, right no, I love it, Joe. I love it. You know, that's the kind of you know, ah, it's a podcast. That's what I love about it. Like talking to people like you that can relate. Yeah. Like I get so excited talking about art, thinking about it. You yeah. got to see it. So I'm channeling myself through your experience of it from what I'm seeing in the book and like. Just yeah, imagine yeah. it, like, and walking through it. So you're doing an awesome job. Um, Kenitra wrote a, a part of the essay that's in the catalog that's talking about black portraiture. Um, mm-hmm. can you, can you tell me how how it felt and how you felt the black portraiture was used in this context uh, to go about what they were saying. So the black, I mean, portraiture right now is as popular as it is in the contemporary market, we know of, and especially has been for the last few years um, with black artists being kind of seen in that light and working in that, working in that way. Um, I was interesting about the portraitures of having, there were, there were a lot of artists in that area that I did not recognize because a lot of them were Afro-Latino and Dominican, based in Dominican, right. based internationally in France. Um, Cause I'm used to portraitures that are from the South or from, just from the artists that I'm recognized, but there was a lot of portraiture from individuals that I didn't know of, um, which I kind of was like, oh darn. But I was excited because there was ways for me to learn about how we are seen in any other way, because it's Afro-Atlantic history. That means it's all of the Atlantic. And so it's like, I, I, it's, it wasn't centered only around black, black, black Americans. Right. It was centered around blackness in other spaces. And so I really enjoyed the portraiture area of that, like there was one from Brazil that really struck me um, by Rosina Becker do Valle. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Shoot me if I'm wrong, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, either way, it's um, like it was a picture of, um, it was uh, like an Indian figure with like greenery behind them. And it was like, they were like a hunter. And I was like, but that's that, even though that was based in Rio de Janeiro, that's an imagery that I recognized from African history, right? And so there was like this, I saw it from the eye um, of being subjective, like knowing African history. But if you think about it, that's Rio de Janeiro. I saw it as an African history, but there is still some, there's a connection there, right? Yeah. what else? Uh, portraiture, like, oh, I'm trying to look through the book because I know there was one that I really wanted to say. Oh, this one, there was a few by um, another, Brazilian artists were very prevalent in this area. And this is, and I was like, why don't we know about these um, individuals? Um, Emilio de, I don't, I'm not saying these names right. Emilio de Caval, Cavalcanti um, and Antonio Rafael Pinto Bandiera. I feel like I said the last name right. Um, but they, <laughs> there was some portraiture in there that really kind of looks like artists that I can recognize today that are Black Americans. But at the end of the day, we don't really know. A lot of our heritage is so mixed up because of how we were brought to America yeah. or how we were displaced in various countries across the world. And so I like the fact that there is identity in this internationalism of somebody being somewhere else. But I was like, I can, I'm not in Brazil. I have not ever been raised in Brazil, but people see Brazil as like this more white Latino or white kind of features or, or kind of um, Spanish features. And I'm like, no, there's a really strong black demographic, African history, black African history um, in Brazil. And I think this shows that, and that was really powerful for me to show like, it says Rio de Janeiro, but this looks like a black woman. You know why? Because it is. Yeah, it is. And people don't identify those Brazilian cultures or South American cultures with black people, but there's a strong Afro-Latina culture there, a black um, culture there. So it's that part was really pivotal for me to show portraiture from people outside of America. And I thought that was freaking genius because it was like, oh, you're looking for portraits of us. Like, no, these are people, these are from countries where you wouldn't think they would look like us. But then you also had like the John Biggers there. You had the classics from Beaufort Delaney. You had classics from Barclay Hendricks. You had 
Um, uh, who else? Uh, let me see. I'm trying to flip through. But yeah, so those were kind of they. She had the classic portraiture artists from um, that that are pivotal to our our African art history, our Black African American art history. But there was still like the strong presence of identity outside of the Americas, which I thought was. I mean, it was just great. Yeah. Um, yeah. When yeah. in Kenitra, yeah. me and Kenitra conversation, we pointed out that most slaves that travel across from Africa ended up in South America and not, yeah, not, wow. not, yeah. Um, not America. Yeah. And so it's, yeah. as much as we try to define the legacy of slavery, just in terms of in America. just an American thing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in South America, Brazil, a lot of places they have, uh, uh, a ton of <laughs> African transplants and they brought mm-hmm. their culture and their way of thinking with them. Mm-hmm. And so everything yeah. kind of changes, but you can see a lot of similarities. There's just, a ton of similarities. Yeah. And just how we function and how we look at stuff. The I, We took our outlook with us and adapted yeah. to the places where we were. Yeah. Even like there was, I'm looking at one, I'm looking in the book now that like, even in the book, they have it well planned out. So where like there's a Benny Andrews, um, a study portrait of oppression next to a Dumil Fenny piece from South Africa mm. where the faces both look like African masks. Right. Right. But these are two different um, ones from 1985 and one is from 1969, but two very different parts of the world, but very similar in aesthetic. Right. And so those, those connections with how we see ourselves from just outside of America, I think was just really, really beautiful. I'm glad to hear that she spoke about that um, and the importance of doing that because we weren't, we weren't just brought to America. Yeah. <laughs> we were brought, we were brought all over the world and people don't realize we were not just, if you look at the map of the transatlantic, transatlantic trade, slave trade there, it is the, the arrows go everywhere outside of uh, Africa. Yeah. Everywhere, everywhere. And so it's just, it's, yeah, I think I just think she did a really wonderful job in separating it. Um, I'm trying to locate the piece um, in this book right now. I it was at the very end. I, was, I don't know if you have another question because I'm about to go off on a tangent. <laughs> go um, for it, <laughs> you know, we love a good tangent on the door show. We love it. Oh, my gosh. I'm trying to find. So when I got to the end, I did not want to leave. I literally like turned around when I got to the end and I realized I was at the end. I turned around and walked back. And I sat in the portraiture area a little longer um, because I was like, no, I don't want to leave yet. This can't be over. And so I kind of did like another walkthrough. When I went back, I got and ended up back at the Romare Bearden. Um, and there was a woman there that was crying. And she knew him as a, one of her professors. Wow. And she was and she was maybe I'm 38. So she was made. She was I think she said she was in her like, mid 40s. But she was like she worked with him. Um, she was one, I was one of her professors and I was like, wow. Okay. Um, and, or she taught, she had a class with him somehow and she started crying and I gave her a tissue and we started talking about art. And she was like, I was, she was like, I studied art and I went and I, I wanted to do art, but I just, I don't have the motivation. And me and her just sat in the gallery talking about her art and what I told her what I do. And she was like, what? I was like, yeah, girl, like get your stuff out there, like share it. <laughs> And I was like, are you on Instagram? She was like, so we shared each other's Instagram and we we connected on this level of, I was like, you know, girl, do your art. Who knows, who cares who sees it? Just do it. She was like, you know, I work in education and sometimes I'm just motivated to do it. I just don't feel like I have the time. I was like, get up, just start with like a notebook and get some watercolors or get some pencils and just start. And I was like, and if you want to sell it, put it on Instagram and just show people that you're doing it. And you really want to build that network again. She was like, I know he would be proud of me if I did that. I was like, then do it. I was like, there's no way to start. I mean, there's no way, there's no reason for you to stop. You know what? I have the wrong name. It wasn't Ramir Bearden. Uh, who? Driscoll, David Driscoll. Okay, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, my, my brain was so stuck in the Ramir Bearden piece. No, it was David Driscoll. She where she taught she was a student under David Driscoll. And mm. I apologize for that mishap of names. But she was having this moment and she, we spoke about him and I and she talked about coming to Atlanta to see the exhibition that was at the high and she couldn't make it. Mm. Um and because she thinks she's from she thinks she lives in Maryland. 
but anyway, it was just this moment that we had around just like, you know, black being educated. She's like, being an educator is just as hard. And I was like, I can't imagine you being in the arts. It's just as hard. I was like, yeah, it's hard, <laughs> but I'm still doing it and I'm still doing it. And we had this, we had this kind of sister girl moment. Um, and I think that was kind of a special thing because we actually still talk on Instagram and via text just like, hey, what are you doing? She checks on me and I check on her about accountability, about what we, what we talked about, what we want to do. Um, and so that was really special to also connect with another individual while in that space in a vulnerable moment. Yeah. Um, and it, it was just, yeah, it was, it was really, it was really pivotal for me as I circled back. And then as we separated ways, I went back to the end. There was one point where I cried. The Titus Gavar piece was one piece that I really resonated with because I hadn't seen his work um, in person. I hadn't seen this particular this particular piece in person. Um, and you had, this was just one of the ones where they had the QR code and he was talking about it. And Titus Gafar, you know, it's okay. He's not on Instagram too. So sometimes he doesn't exist to people. Um, so <laughs> shame like, on you. Don't know Titus Right. Gafar. Shame on you, Titus. <laughs> but no, but like he doesn't have like people post his work, but he doesn't like, unless you hear one of his lectures that he's done, which I kind of do on YouTube. Cause I'm a nerd that way. But if oh, yeah, you I'm hear with him you. talk about it, right. If you let you hear him talk about it, it, you would not be able to really like you get it when you look at it, but you really have to listen to him um, explain it um, and really delve into the research of why he does it this way. So that piece kind of made me cry a little bit, seeing it in person and hearing his voice around it. Um, is this the one, that room is this the one with the uh, uh, well, she's on her knees and the baby is wide out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. and the baby's on the back. Yeah. And the baby's extracted from the painting. And so um, just this last room, the way. It was just like, I don't even know what the title of this last room was. I don't think it was, I don't think it was a section like the others. All right. So it was the Titus Kofar piece. Um, and it was in, in the book. She also shows like the reference of where it came from, which is really amazing. If you don't have the book, get it. Um, because this is the way for you to remember what really um, the exhibition was about. But she also had a Faith Ringgold um, uh, piece there. Um, there was a, the, I am a man, which we all seen rendered in other paintings and other ways, many different ways redone, but the actual painting was sitting right there. And I was just like, I had never seen it in person. I've seen it rendered and work from Atlanta artists, work mm-hmm. from artists across the country, but I had mm-hmm. never seen the, that painting in person. And so that was really special to me um, to have it be a part of that exist, a part of, part of that exhibition. Coming out of it, what was interesting also me leaving, as I'm having this like emotional reaction and really not wanting to leave the space and capture it, all I, I went straight to the gift shop because of course it's at the end of it and I bought the book and I was like, I need this book, give it to me now, got the book. But as I was leaving, there was a performance by Okay, I'm not going to butcher her name. I promise. There was a performance by Maria Magdalena Campos Pons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she had other, um, in, her, in her exhibition, I mean, in her performance, she had other women who, um, one of them I knew, Helena, who is an artist, but she had this um, performance that she, where she was doing it around the fountains. And it was like, I can't even describe what happened. Everybody just stopped. Everybody was in all white. She had these flags. She was waving. She was waving them everywhere, and there was just like this music. And there were her voices. Would she would have like this undertone in her voice that was happening. And I wish I can play the audio so you can hear it. I don't know if it would resonate very well um, um, on the phone, but it was this. The sound even was like really, really magical um, with what was happening in that space and. She just had this all white face on. She had dark, she had, she like blacked out around her eyes. Um, and they were waving these white flags, dressed in all white. And they were just marching around people. And people were just sitting all everywhere. And if you got in the way of the flag, you got hit by the flag. Like somebody actually got hit by the, because they were waving them and people were yeah. sitting on the side. But she was like, you're not going to get in my way. And the way they were just kind of making space um, for this was really, really magical. Um, and I wish, I don't know if you can't hear, you can't hear it on here. But, um, but she had these women that were pivotal, pivotal, pivotal in the arts and also in the culture and also in the community um, represented. So there was about seven, I think, women behind her that was marching with her. No, five, five women marching with her. And they were going, they went all through the atrium and they went through the galleries and then they did another performance on the other side, which I did not make it to um, because I wanted to go downstairs and see the James Vanity exhibition. But a part of this whole 
Afro-Atlantic Histories Festival. I think it was really special that the National Gallery of Art did that to highlight the, the exhibition because I think it was important for people to see um, the vastness of blackness, mm. um, the vastness of African, the African diaspora, um, and the way they just really amplified this with the festival and with the other um, materials that they had out. Because um, when you came back out, there were vendors there from all over, like I said before, but the really special part that I sat with um, after I didn't, since, since, I, since I didn't follow Maria's um, performance, they had a table um, of the library, I think it was library, and I think they're in the archives, where you could see the research or some of the ephemera, the materials that was used um, in the research behind the exhibition. Um, and there was one thing that I saw, they had like, you know, different magazines out, different uh, journals out um, and images out, but there was one that was about Elizabeth Prophet that was written by County Cullen that really struck my eye. Um, but they had all these different journals out that really um, amplified like the history of what this is. Like there were so many people contributing to capturing um, our, our, the African diaspora history of whether through writing, through art, through music um, and how interweave they were um, before these years. And I think they're still interweave now. We just don't see it as much because everything feels so separate because everybody has their own phones and our own Instagrams. Yeah. But I feel like thinking about the, how you communicated your art to the world then before, you know, 1960, 1950, when it was more news out, where there's more printed pu publications, thinking about how they captured their voices then was just, they were doing it for each other. Like how you're doing, you capture the voices of artists and writers and curators and art historians and uh, of the like, of the creators alike. They were do they didn't have this platform, but they did it in their own way that they could then. And they were peers highlighting each other, um, which is really, really special. Um, and so I think that what, Kenitra did was um, amazing, and I wish this was coming to Atlanta somehow, but it, I think DC was the last stop. Um, but I'm very happy to have a book, and I'm very happy to have had that experience of walking through that exhibition. Um, and I need to kind of do a recap um, somehow, and because I, I, I couldn't even put it into the words. I usually do like a post of my visits, like even on my Instagram to share with people that couldn't, couldn't experience it. But it was just really special, and I wish that we. I wish I can give her flowers, like throw flowers at her. Just for I know this is her job, but what she did here was extremely special, and I wish that I could tell her that. And I hope she hears this and that she knows that. Um, kudos to you, and um, you deserve all the praises for the experience that she created for this exhibition at the National Gallery of Art. Absolutely, I don't think you can ask for nothing better than that for somebody to take your history seriously, and you know oh, having, sure. having people in her position. Uh, you know, the first ever uh, social curator of African-American mm -hmm. and Afri Afri Afro-diasporic arts mm -hmm. at NGA. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that says a lot already, you know. And, and, the fact, and, that's, and that's the part of what Black women are trying to do. Like, there's no reason why she should be the first, but we should have more of that. Yeah. Um, the responsibility of our Blackness should be on us. Um, and it was funny because I was even reading an article yesterday about a, the statue of Harriet Tubman being produced by a white sculptor and now it's showing and now he's touring it around the world i'm just like what <laughs> why was this not produced so it's like you it's like if we are the producers of our own stories it makes it that much more special and i, I hope that spaces like the national gallery of art and other spaces that are you know putting black women or black individuals or black um, people of the people of the diaspora in charge of telling our stories i think that is the most vital way you can i guess I hate using these words, but diversify and include and have some inclusion into your space. If we tell our own stories, um, it is that much more pivotable. Pivotal. Pivotal. <laughs> I can't talk today. I can't talk today. It's been a long it's day. Friday. Yeah, it's been a long it's day. Been a long day. Goodness. Yeah. But I, I think on the last note, as we wrap it up, I think um, it also speaks to what you would talk about with the woman that you met, like at the, mm -hmm. at the show. And, to me, it gets highlighted in the amount of work that was that they were able to find and produce. The work oh, yeah. was was produced hundreds, right? Hundreds. The work was already produced. That's the that's yeah. the beauty of it. I tell her like, you just tell, had to put it together. Yeah, send this podcast to her too, because I'm talking straight to her as I say this. <laughs> like, you got to tell your story. You have mm. to do whatever you have to do to get in. I say it on this podcast. It's not just a catchphrase. You have to go make the noise. You got to mm. put the pencil to the paper. You put the brush to the canvas. 
you you cut the wood you put the ceramics you do all of that stuff you do it for you and you yeah. telling your story there's nothing more powerful than that it doesn't matter if somebody sees it if, as long as it was produced it exists and it can't yeah. be ignored that's yeah. the part of it you get together all of this stuff all of these people and these black artists have existed and have been making art for years decades centuries since the beginning of time it exists yeah they never whether, know where it's going to end exactly yeah. and whether they record it or not you've made it and they yeah. can't reject it or deny it and eventually you'll get your due whatever you and do i think is. that i think that's an important message for any artist even yourself jamal as a producing artist like it's you if you don't make it who will exactly <laughs> whether no matter if it looks like somebody else's or not that is up to you know professionals to decide if they want to support it or not but either way your voice is your voice find your voice i think that's the most important thing that Absolutely. i would tell an artist aside from producing don't produce when you see inspirations from other people like produce what comes out of your own heart your gut your head yes do your research study different ways of approaches to study different ways and approaches to your art to your practice but find your voice in it find your voice because that's the part that is going to be the most striking for people when they see they can feel you in your art absolutely versus you being quote unquote people are using inspired by as a way to say copy but I would just say, who, what would what would you do if you didn't have an Instagram, if there were no billboards, if there were no books for you to look in, what would you create out right. of your own gut? What would you create? Just the same way somebody talks about, you know, when you talk about style and fashion, if what would you wear if there were no fashion, you know, people telling you what to wear, what yeah. was popular, what would you wear? What would you wear? And so it's like, consider that in producing work, because the, the fact that there could be 50 years from now, somebody could produce another historical African-based, African diasporic-based exhibition who knows to say what, you know, Jamal Barber's going to be up in there, you know, from the work be. that he produced, yeah. right? Gotta be. <laughs> and so, <laughs> gotta be. And so now it's like, consider like the, what your voice is saying to people 50 to 100 years from now. What do you want to say? And I think this exhibition encapsulates not only the contemporary, but the historical aspect, which I think is just, because just as much as the contemporary is producing now, they're capturing history even now. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. you, and so it's just it, it's just the the range of which these works um, showcase um, how Africa was just robbed and how we have still thrived and captured our own beauty, our own history, our own stories within our artwork to me is just um, always a powerful um, way to tell our stories through art. Exactly. Because even in, even in their time, they were contemporaries in their own time. And if exactly. they spoke honestly, exactly. honestly and boldly and captured that story, that's why it stands the test of time. Yes, exactly. That's it. So great job, Kanisha. <laughs> that's it, Joe. <laughs> Lauren, tell them where they can find you. Oh, you can find me at L, the letter L, Jackson Harris um, on Instagram. And that's about it. I'm not anywhere else. <laughs> that's it. That's it. We're proud. <laughs> appreciate you coming on, yo. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Another episode of Studio Noise in the Bag. Nobody does it like us. Action packed. Kanitra, Lauren. Oh, it's the best. <laughs> Next week, we back talking to Toki Taylor about some interesting work. I don't know about y'all, but all my artists out there, I'm ready to get to it. I'm ready to get back in the studio. I can't help but listening to those artists, the people telling the stories. I want to tell my story. I want to make some noise. Yes, you go make some noise too. Come back next week. We'll be back with you, your boy Dave Barber. The noise, I'm out. Yes. Thank you for listening to the Studio Noise Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take a second to rate us and write a review to make sure everybody knows about the noise. Follow us on Instagram at Studio Noise Podcast. <laughs>